Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, of Cointel Pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Ha. We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here of Cointel Pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. The leadership team of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table, we thank you for joining us this evening. Um, 
Today, first and foremost, on this day, June 19th, 1865, our enslaved ancestors in Galveston, Texas, received words of our emancipation, um, obviously two years after the proclamation was initially entered. Today is widely celebrated as the end of chattel slavery, although, as we know, uh, our struggle um, literally has not ended. Um, and we thank you for joining us here today, first in commemoration of that day, but also in commemoration and honoring all the work that's gone forward. Um, we join here now as part of the continuum of that struggle as the Movement for Black Lives approaches both a five-year commemoration um, of the Ferguson uprisings and of our own existence. We're taking tonight to, well, we're taking time this year to update and revisit the Vision for Black Lives platform. This discussion on reparations is the first of six that we will hold going into 2020. And we thank you for joining us as we introduce um, our own ideas around reparations. And tonight you're going to actually hear some of the voices that have actually been leading the work uh, for a number of years in the struggle and some of the more prominent voices in our movement. So today and every day, as we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, as they guide our, our hands and have our backs in the struggle, um, we wanted to ground both the work that we're going forward with in terms of the movement for black lives, but in our broader struggle. So tonight, we have joining us, first and foremost, First voice that you're going to hear tonight is Nkichi Taifa, who will give us first a rundown on the hearing that happened this morning around HR 40 and give us some sense of the political moment. And then following her, we're going to hear the voice of Marion Kaba, who will help us understand what reparations is. And then immediately following Miriam. We will hear a voice from Sanyeka from MXGM, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, to give us some context on international struggles and what's happening with reparations. And from there, we will shift and look at some of the actual work that's currently taking place and the way it's actually being applied to policy. So with that, I will turn it over to Nkichi. Yes, Manchika, thank you so very much. This is indeed an auspicious moment that we find ourselves in. Indeed, the number of different activities I've been involved in in just a day's time has been outstanding and astounding. Um, my morning started with a 7 a.m. radio interview on reparations. It continued with a 10 o'clock a.m. historical hearing in the House Judiciary Committee on reparations. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Next at 1 o'clock was an unprecedented convening hosted by the American, uh, the National African American Reparations Commission, NARC, and the American Civil Liberties Union at Metropolitan AME Church on reparations. This same afternoon was an afternoon of panels and discussions by the Washington Bar Association at a prominent law firm on reparations. And just this evening, I just stepped out from presenting the J. Clay Smith Memorial Lecture before the Washington Bar Association, again, on reparations. And right now, we're all participating in the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table on reparations. 
tomorrow I'll be in Detroit, Michigan at the Encobra National Convention on Reparations. Also tomorrow, the Movement for Black Lives DC is hosting a debate on reparations. And there are likely countless other activities around the country, likewise at this time, focused on reparations. So this morning's hearing included witnesses, Ta-Nehisi Coates, of course we know also as a case of black reparations in the Atlantic uh, magazine, also Danny Glover, ambassador for the International Decade of People of African Descent, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, noted economist and commissioner uh, of the uh, National African American Reparations Commission, Katrina Brown, whose family was the largest lady trading family in U.S. history, Reverend Eugene Sutton, who advocated that the Episcopal Church Diocese of Maryland repair the breach of the legacy of slavery, Professor Eric Miller, who served on the legal team on behalf of the living victims of the 1923 massacre of the black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Cory Booker, who introduced the companion bill to the Senate. Now, there were two witnesses also called uh, by the um, minority who were basically apologists for uh, uh, saying that there was no need for reparations. But this has been an, an auspicious day. But let's not get it twisted. Although revolutionary activists worked closely on the formation of H.R. 40, it was not necessarily the preferred approach of entities like myself who were involved in the New African Independence Movement. I'm talking about back in 1989 when H.R. 40 was first introduced. But it was a strategic move to point out the contradiction of the United States having just passed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which afforded each Japanese American $20,000, each Japanese American, you know, detention camp survivor $20,000, a trust fund, a formal apology, and something I always elevate as a signal that this must be part of our claim for reparations for our political prisoners and exiles. The Japanese American Reparations Bill included a pardon for all of those who resisted detention camp internment. So I just want to kind of conclude, you know, by just saying that there is a sweet urgency in the air. There is an urgency because the United States government has yet to take responsibility for its role in the enslavement and the U.S. apartheid era, has never made reparations to the descendants of Africans enslaved in the United States for the generations of labor expropriated from us, deprivation of our human rights, terrorism against our people throughout the centuries. And there is an urgency because of the rise and resurgence of white terrorism. And I say white terrorism, I don't say white nationalism, but I, I say white terrorism. There is an urgency because the role that governments, corporations, industries, religious institutions, educational institutions, private states, and other entities, the role that they all played in supporting the institution of slavery and its vestiges are roles that can no longer be ignored, are roles that can no longer be dismissed, are roles that can no longer be swept under the rug. The time is now, the time is ripe that these roles be recognized and examined, that they be discussed, and that they be redressed. I just want to say 
reparations mail. Thank you, back over to you. Thank you, Nkichi. Okay. With that, I will turn it over to Miriam Kava uh, to talk us through what reparations is and what reparations is not. Hi, everybody. Um, good evening. I'm happy to be here joining everybody in this conversation that is incredibly important um, and very timely and relevant. Um, my name is Mariam Kaba. I um, am the director and founder of an organization called Project NIA, um, and I am a member of the uh, Movement for Black Lives Policy Table. Um, so I'm gonna just start off by talking about what reparations are not, because I think that's a good way to get us started. Um, You've heard different iterations of the term reparations applied to many different kinds of things. Um, the way that we talk about it in the Movement for Black Lives is that reparations are not an investment in underprivileged communities. They are not paying one black person's bills. They're not making a donation to the Schomburg or any other cultural institution. It is not free Starbucks coffee for black people, right? Actually, reparations is a systemic structural response to a harm committed by or from corporations, the government, various institutions, some families, et cetera, people who have and institutions that have profited from particular harm. That's the definition that we take in our understanding of what reparations are and what they are not. Um, a central harm and violation in this country is chattel slavery. And we also acknowledge the uh, eliminationist policies of genocide uh, against indigenous native folks as also a very huge central harm. But we start on the Movement for Black Lives policy table and, and generally talking about chattel slavery. It's where we begin. I think I just want to do a little bit about that context setting, about the Atlantic slave trade, which was the largest forced migration in world history. Twelve Over 12 million Africans were captured and enslaved in the Americas. That's more than 80 per day for 400 years, just to give you some sense of scope. That's over 440,000 ships that brought enslaved Africans across the ocean. And for us, for our conversation, at least for the beginning of this webinar, we're talking about the United States mostly and the history of reparations within the United States. 3.6% of the total number of Africans who were brought to the Americas actually reached the United States. So it's a small number compared to the large scope of the Atlantic slave trade. But it's a huge number when you think of almost, almost 400,000 Africans who arrived in the U.S. between the mid-17th century to 1860. Um, and those are the ones who survived the Middle Passage. And there are thousands of people who actually did not make it here. Um, they were kidnapped but did not make it through the Middle Passage. So we also uplift them and um, think of them as well. So what chattel slavery was, was a systemic structural form of labor economic exploitation. 
um, along with uh, reproductive and sexual violence, which were key aspects. Um, it was also uh, racial dehumanization, racial terrorism and violence. Um, and so all those forms included no wages for work that was done, the forced separation of children, systemic sexual violence, violent denial of education, and so, so much more. So when you hear us talking about all the different places and, you know, spaces where um, the government and corporations and some families and others owe reparations, you get a general sense of the ways in which um, black people, uh, enslaved Africans were uh, sublimated um, within this country. So, on um, a lot of times when we talk about reparations, there are conversations about land, and we're really not going to get into that today, except to say that for those of you who've ever heard the slogan or the term 40 acres and a mule, um, you, that comes from uh, an order that is called Special Field Order Number 15 that was offered on January 16, 1865, um, as the Civil War was entering its fourth year, um, a Union general named William T. Sherman issued the order, which confiscated as federal property a strip of coastal land that extended about 30 miles inland from the Atlantic, stretching from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, um, south to Jacksonville, Florida. And the order gave most of the roughly 400,000 acres of newly of uh, land to newly uh, emancipated slaves enslaved people um, in 40-acre uh, sections. And so the land became the basis of the slogan, 40 acres and a mule. But this was a really short-lived um, uh, kind of order and a short-lived promise to black people uh, because over objections of many, um, the president at the time, Andrew Johnson, overturned Sherman's directive in the fall of 1865, after the war had ended, and returned most of the land along the South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida coast to the planters who had originally owned it. And so um, I always like to make sure that people understand that that false promise to make restitution to some African who had been enslaved, who became African Americans, um, is part of the kind of call for restitution, redress, and reparation that people are still um, holding today. Um, so there's a long history of demands for reparations for slavery. Um, immediately after the Civil War, questions about how to address the conditions of the newly freed enslaved people emerged as particular, particularly salient. Um, there were demands for redress and then reparations that were consistently made. And importantly, I want to raise up the fact that black women in particular were at the forefront of making these demands. One of those black women is somebody who some of you may have heard the name of, but many do not know. And it was a woman named Callie House, who was a formerly enslaved person, or she characterized herself an ex-slave. She built and led a movement which began in 1897 to demand pensions for formerly enslaved people. She established something called the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, which was a chapter-based organization of chapters that were basically benevolence and mutual aid chapters that demanded that Congress pass legislation to give pensions to formerly enslaved people. At the time, there were 1.3 million who were still living in 1897. 
And what they had asked for, and this is a demand that Frederick Douglass supported at the time, was $12 a month for people who were over 80 years old and $5 a month for those under 50. By the time 1905 hit, this organization that I mentioned had over 300,000 paying due members, 300,000 paid due members. That was extraordinary. By 1917, after years of surveillance and harassment, the U.S. government had prosecuted and jailed Kelly House on false charges of mail fraud. You know, as you know, anytime black people work together, band together to gain power and build power, the government has come and decided to basically use repression and criminalization and other forms of, um, of uh, kind of violence in order to continue to subjugate us. Um, many chapter members of the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Associated migrated from that association once Cali House was incarcerated and then released. Um, basically, they migrated to Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and uh, because they resonated with his Pan-Africanist call for all colonial powers in the world to basically return African people's lands to pay restitution for economic and cultural destruction and more. And so it's not surprising that in the modern era of reparations history, um, a woman would emerge to uh, become kind of, uh, you know, uh, devoted and, uh, and steadfast pusher of modern reparations. That woman's name is Queen Mother Audley Moore. Queen Mother Moore spent 70 years of her activist career pushing reparations. Um, I'm not going to go into much more besides reading from historian Ashley Farmer, who writes about Queen Mother Moore. No one has done more to integrate claims for reparations for African Americans into black activism than Queen Mother Moore. An activist for 70 years, she dedicated the majority of her career to fighting for reparations. Um, and that is absolutely true. And if you don't know about Queen Mother Moore, Queen Mother Audley Moore, you should check into her and learn more about her. She wrote down her claims and history in a very important um, pamphlet and booklet called Why Reparations, still available that people can look through. She joined forces in the 1980s with the National Coalition of Blacks for reparations in America. Nkichi mentioned before Cobra, that organization is one she helped to co-found in the 1980s. Um, and so look into all of these things as well. So we start with and keep reparations for slavery at the core of our work. We don't stop there, however. The movement for black lives demands reparations also for the afterlife of slavery. For the hundred and now going years of Jim Crow racial terror, of Rosewoods and of Tuskegee's, also the anti-black immigration policies that also serve as a badge and incident of slavery in its afterlife. We claim all those things too as part of things that need to be redressed for all black people living in the United States and also in solidarity with black people internationally who are also making claims to reparations which will be talked about a bit later. Um, so we think of reparations as a critical framework for black liberation. We think that we can apply this framework to uh, our organizing concretely when we talk about anti-black racism that's rooted in slavery, such as the war on drugs, forced, uh, forced sterilization, police violence. 
Um, again, reparations is not limited to the United States um, uh, in terms of the, the claims that are made or in terms of people receiving reparations in various countries around the world. It is an international principle of law. And there are really, um, it's a concept that is rooted in international law that involves repair to specific individuals, to groups of people, to nations for very specific harms that they have experienced that are basically in violation of their human rights. And reparations requires under international law five specific actions to restore the specific groups of individuals, communities, and nations that are directly impacted by the violation to the conditions they would have enjoyed had the violation not occurred. So the five things to always keep in mind Acknowledgement of harm, including official apologies, public education, and memorials, compensation for injury and harm, and for lost land, labor, property, relationships, culture, and spirituality, restitution, including restoration of victims' rights, property, and citizenship status, rehabilitation, including psychological and physical support, and cessation and guarantees of non-repetition, including reforming or eliminating laws and civil and political structures that led to or fueled the harm, including those that continue to do so today. So I don't have time because there's like, I'm at time basically, um, but I do wanna just add in a couple of minutes that um, part of why I'm on this call is because I was part of an effort uh, that took place in Chicago um, that uh, won in 2015 um, the first and to this date only reparations uh, in any municipality in the United States for police torture survivors. And what we did in um, organizing that campaign, which basically is a campaign that um, stands on the shoulders um, or kind of just, you know, gets inspiration and ideas and its fuel from over 30 years of, of organizing that took place by uh, torture survivors who were tortured by um, a man named John Burge and his midnight crew, his other officers, is systemic, systematic, structural forms of torture. Um, those survivors who banded together to fight um, to make sure that people knew this happened to them and refused to allow themselves to be basically, uh, you know, disappeared. That them, their families, all the advocates and organizers and artists and everybody who came together um, to basically say that uh, we needed a political response and a political solution to something that for years had been um, focused on a legal um, fight and a legal struggle. Um, and so, we used the UN's um, kind of five elements. We applied those, and we applied the, the concept of the apology and the memorial, compensation, rehabilitation, restitution in uh, the forms of many things, like access to employment and education. We applied those five ways of, uh, of thinking about reparations in an international way um, to that campaign and were successful. I would just la end by saying the only part of the five elements that really we could not guarantee is that we could not guarantee the cessation and non-repetition of the harm. As you all know, policing is endemically violent, has been so from its inception, 
and the idea of how we're going to basically be able to uh, guarantee non-repetition of harm by that very harmful, inherently so, institution. For some of us, it's a call for the abolishment of that institution. Um, that is a long horizon, and that's a 500-year plan, not a five-year plan. So thank you very, very much. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing what everybody else has to say in your questions later. Thank you so much for that, Miriam. Okay, and with that, um, we're going to move uh, to an international lens and talk about reparations from a global context and about the work that's happening internationally. Um, so, Brother Nsanyeka, uh from the MXG, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. I'll turn it over to you. Okay, Freedom Land comrades, um, thanks for organizing this call. Um, one thing uh, I wanted to, don't have a whole lot of time on this, there's a lot going on, but I'm, um, I'm basically going to run down some of what's been going on internationally on this for the last 19, about 19 years. Um, we start out um, 2001 in South Africa. Um, in 2001, there was the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. And out of that conference came um, uh, the, what's known as the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. Uh, and these programs of action are organized around really coming up with like a concrete plan to address uh, racism, xenophobia, um, and, and such issues. Um, in uh, Colombia, for example, a program of action was organized that that led to the changing of the Colombian constitution to allow for land rights for both the indigenous um, population as well as the African population in Colombia. And through that, there's some, some recognition over their, over their autonomy, over their lands in that, in that region. Um, so from there, um, you know, that was, that was part of a, a long, long and, um, uh, historic drive for reparations that was happening. You know, it's just to talk about Queen Mother Moore's work. So this is definitely in connection with that. Um, going into uh, 2004, a couple years later, um, the Aristide government in um, in Haiti, before he had been um, forcibly removed in a coup, um, had uh, been pressing France for for reparations um, in part um, because the French government had had been um, had actually been taking money from from uh, the Haitian government um, ever since the the end of the Haitian Revolution. Right? So billions and billions of dollars um, Haiti was forced to give up to France, and so. The, the Haitian government under Aristide had pushed for reparations before he was um, forcibly removed in a coup. Right. Uh, and it, was a, it was a very, very um, significant blow to the international reparations movement at that time. Right. Um, since then, since then um, we have gone into um, what's known as the International Decade for People of African Descent. 
Um, and we're seeing this um, going from 2014 to 2024. Uh, and we're, we're looking at that, uh, several organizations in the United States, uh, organizations in England, organizations in Africa, organizations in the Caribbean, are trying to use the international decade to mobilize for the implementation of, uh, of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. And um, we're, we really like are trying to use that as kind of like developing out a Marshall Plan for black people. Okay. Um, some of um, some of what's been going on since then um, in Venezuela, for example. Um, I'm gonna start. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pause there and I'll go back to the Caribbean for a little bit. I'm sorry, went out of order for a little bit. Um, so in 2013, the Caribbean countries through CARICOM, which is the Caribbean Community. Uh, introduced a 10-point plan for reparations from European countries, right? And um, they start to make a motion for, for a significant lawsuit against the Europeans. Um, in 2018, in Venezuela, uh, the Venezuelan government under President Maduro signed on to the Declaration for the International Decade for people of African descent, and in May of of last year, as part of the um, Venezuelan government's commitment to the international decade, they hosted an uh, international conference on reparations, um, which was which had representation from African states, including South Africa, Angola, Algeria, Mali. Um, several of the Caribbean countries like Barbados, Grenada, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, um, Bolivia, Uruguay. Um, and at this, at this conference, uh, the Venezuelan government uh, made, made uh, commitments to push for the implementation of the Durban Declaration through, um, through the United Nations and through the, um, the non-aligned movement. So there's a lot of significant, significant um, motion internationally around the question of reparations, and it's it's fundamentally tied to the question of self-determination of peoples. Right? And um, and I, the thing about the thing about reparations, um, as far as as far as self-determination goes, it's like you're trying to repair and bring back the things that were stolen from the people and like our right to choose for ourselves, our right to determine our own lives, our, 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 our ability to define our relationship to each other and to the world around us. Those are some of the first things that were stolen from us, right? And so in the international sphere, um, the, the conversation around reparation really does take on the, the language of self-determination, the rights, the rights of nations, right? And um, historically, uh, Miriam brought up the, the work of Queen Mother Moore, and th that's, that's the lens that she was looking at reparations from, right? A real, like, self-determined self -determined lens, like what's it going to take to bring, bring um, the people of their ability to decide and make their own choices, uh, govern themselves, et cetera.
right? And so, and so for for a lot of for a lot of us, like the the, the stakes for reparations are very high, um, and you know the we're very 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 much looking at the international communities. Um, just motions on reparations is a source of is a source of clarity and a source of inspiration, um, and also looking looking to take uh, to also looking to build connect connectivity between the local liberation struggles and what's going on internationally. So I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave it there. I uh, know that we don't have a whole lot of time, but I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. Um, so with that one, we want to like take a second and breathe because it feels like folks have taken in a lot of information. Um, and we want to make sure that the information that's being presented is useful to you in your work. So just as a, a question for folks to reflect on and ponder as we move forward, uh, we want you to think about what is it that you're doing now that could actually be done under a reparations framework. Oh what work are you actually doing now that you can actually do under a reparations framework. So to help you unpack that a bit, uh, we're going to bring forward uh, Richard Wallace from Chicago from Equity and Transformation uh, to talk a little bit about applying reparations in the context of a current campaign, specifically the work around um, cannabis, cannabis uh, legalization. Uh, Rich, you up? Yes, I am now. I'm off mute. How's everybody doing? Um, my name is Rich, Richard Wallace, he, him, his, out of Chicago, um, founder of an organization called Equity and Transformation. Uh, we are led and founded by formerly incarcerated black people in Chicago. Um, our mission is ultimately is to build social and economic equity for black Chicagoans engaged in the informal economy. A lot of folks are like, what's the informal economy, right? Um, the informal economy... Uh, is a diversified set of economic activities, enterprises, jobs, and workers that are not regulated or protected by the state. Ultimately, we organize the hustlers, the streets, um, folks that are making lemonade out of lemons, which is historically how our people have had to survive post-slavery. Um, our core members um, identify as loose wear folks, uh, sex workers, street performers, hustlers. At the onset of the recreational cannabis legisl legislation in Illinois, a leader of equity and transformation said, hell no, and saw cannabis legalization as a threat, as a threat to their survival. Um, we began reaching out to, uh, we began researching the Illinois, Illinois' current medical industry and realized that out of 55 licenses, the state of Illinois rewarded, not one of them or one of the recipients were black. There were people of color, but no one was black. Uh, um, which was alarming considering the war on drugs had ravaged black communities. In fact, nationwide, black Americans are almost 3.5 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession than white Americans, despite the fact that cannabis use is nearly the same between black and white Americans. And it's not shocking. In fact, it's the norm. Looking deeper into U.S. history, you recognize the troubling trend of occupations that once existed in the formal economy that are legalized by the state. Um, they don't retain black workers. Right. Um, you can look at bootlegging alcohol to liquor manufacturing today. You can't find a black liquor manufacturer. You can find black liquor brands like Effin and, you know, things like that. That's just a label. 
right? The actual manufacturing of the alcohol is not done by black bodies. Um, so we set out to frame this as a frame cannabis legalization in Illinois as a jobs fight, demanding an equitable transition of informal workers to the newly formed $9.5 billion industry that was heading for Illinois. Um, on Friday, May 31st, Illinois became the 11th state to legalize cannabis, and the policy is being praised as one of the most equity-centric policies uh, um, yet, right, around cannabis, right? Our organization, was, our organization along with um, uh, Southside of the Organized for Liberation, um, Action Now, Grow Greater Inglewood, came together and formed the Pure Cannabis Coalition, and what we're able to win Essentially, 800,000 folks are eligible for expungement. Social equity, we created this thing called the social equity applicant, which are folks that apply for from marginalized and disenfranchised communities that were impacted by the war on drugs. Um, those applicants, 50% of their fees will be waived to enter the cannabis industry. There's a low-interest loan program to help subsidize. Um, and there's also a program called ROC, which will reinvest uh, tax revenue from the cannabis sales into communities that were hit hardest by the war on drugs. What we learned is that we were able to successfully change the narrative, right, from freedom to smoke to freedom to participate in the cannabis economy. We want acknowledgement, right, within the framework of reparations. We want acknowledgement, but historically that's been the, that's been the process of the state is to just give us acknowledgement and then close the door. They acknowledge slavery was bad, oops, and then they continue moving on, right? And I think that what we're asking for and, and the framework that, that, that has been offered up in this, um, this webinar is that it needs to be deeper. And we understood and recognized that it needs to be deeper, and our work could have been deeper if we would have framed it as a reparation, like reparations for the war on drugs. Um, so we want acknowledgement, some resemblance of rehabilitation through the ROC program and restitution, um, but compensation is not alone, right? Uh, low interest or whatever, compensation is not a loan, right? So you got to pay a loan back, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So we need to be careful when we, when we get ready to start pushing larger or broader campaigns um, to look out for loopholes because they could just say, we're going to give every black person in America a $500,000 loan, right? And that is not reparations, right? Um, th that is a debt, right? Um, so we began to continue to push there, right? Um, yet with one of the highest so we're able to successfully change the narrative from freedom to smoke to freedom to participate in the cannabis industry. Um, we want acknowledgement, some resemblance of rehabilitation and restitution, but alone is not compensation. Yet with one of the highest racial wealth gaps in the nation, the highest rate of black unemployment in the nation, even with everything we're able to get passed in the policy, equity won't be achieved in the cannabis industry without compensation. It's just impossible. Right. We're able to get some uh, it's like some ray. We get the confetti da, 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 da. we won some things. But at the end of the day, um, there needs to be deep compensation in our communities in order for them to be able to compete within the market. Um, this is one of the things that I learned later, because I think a lot of people use the word equity um, and, 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 and we need to challenge that. Right. Equity is the fair treatment, access and opportunity and advancement of all people. Right. We're talking about reparations for a specific group of people that experience a specific harm. Right. And I think that is where we are finding some of the differences. And, and what I'm learned, what I've learned in our campaign, ultimately, my, my I think my greatest takeaway from this experience and, and, and we did have some success. Right. 
but we need to dig deeper and begin to lead with words like reparations um, in our campaign development um, to get people adjusted to the fact that we are asking for full repair. Um, we're not asking for, you know, these small – and like I said before um, or I've said in the past is that our concessions are killing us, right? So when we concede to equity and exchange that for, repar for reparations, right, we, we begin to empower our communities in different ways. Um, so, uh, yeah, that – that's all I got, um, and that was one of our current campaigns, uh, and in that we were able to kind of identify some of the challenges and pitfalls um, while incorporating a reparations framework. Thank you for that, Rich. Um, so now I think we want to take a second and hear back from some of you, um, specifically around, like, uh, work that you are doing has actually benefited from using a reparations frame. Um, so with that, uh, I'm right, it looks like I'm seeing Ed Whitfield. Would uh, you be willing to share? Uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of things I just wanted to, to mention. Um, there's a lot of work going on about around black land and power that we're looking at from a kind of reparations framework. It has to do with thinking about the millions of acres of land that have been lost uh, to the black community since the early part of the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and we're trying to figure out ways to, again, recoup this wealth in such a way that the wealth remains in the community, not as a commodity that can be bought, sold, traded, gotten rid of, and lost whenever you get in trouble, but that's why the whole question of developing community land trusts take land off the speculative market and make sure that it's available for generations to come to, uh, to our people who, who have everything to gain from having that kind of access to land, whether it's used agriculturally or residentially or for business development or all of the other many things that, that, that we need land for. And the other thing I wanted to mention, I really appreciate the point somebody said, reparations not alone. Uh, I'm working with something called the Southern Reparations Loan Fund, and it's funny because it's not a loan from somebody outside the community that has to be paid back outside the community, but it's developing as a, as a process of making business resources available to people so that when it's paid back, the money remains in the community. I mean, this is, this is on the inside, so that it's available to somebody else in the community to continue to develop things. Um, there is an increasing number of people around the country that recognize some of the injuries done by, by the enslavement of our people. Uh, and to the extent we can break away from discussion of people of color and actually talk about who we're talking about, um, that we're talking about black folk um, whose, whose labor basically funded the Industrial Revolution. We, we pay for the development of the modern world as people come to know it. And so consequently, there's a real debt to be repaid to our community to put us in a position to develop for ourselves the things we need. Again, not to put us in a position to be more empowered consumers to buy stuff that other people produce, but to ourselves be the producers of our own lives, our own livelihood, our own meaning, uh, and our own dignified life, uh, self-reliant, fully humane life of us as producers. And that's the, the kind of work that um, I'm looking forward to seeing people structure into the dialogue around reparations so that it doesn't get to seem like 
we want to get some money to spend inside an already fixed capitalist system that's going to be benefiting somebody else. We want to be able to be the producers of the things that we need to benefit ourselves as a community rather than just a handful of individuals benefiting from it. And so that's some of the work that's going on. The land and power work is really developing. We hope that in the near future we can have a, a national organization where large numbers of people help to put in the resources so that, uh, that we can control our access to regaining the land that we have lost and have this land put back in our community for the generations to come. So, done. Thank you, Brother Woodfield. Uh, I also see Ms. Janetta Johnson. Would you share uh, some of the work that you're attached to as well? Um, well, initially when I started being on the, like, being around the conversations and sitting at the, um, on pol um, the policy table on reparations, um, my thought process was, you know, I have to do the best that I can to support black trans women and having access to reparations. And I feel like it's important for me as a black trans leader in the black trans community. And I kind of have this feeling that I can only do the best that I can to rely on me that the trans community participate in the reparations part. So we were thinking, we were um, like thinking of opening this restaurant management training, which would be a full on restaurant restaurant, but also asking people, uh, particularly targeting white people, to asking them to, like, invest in black trans women by um, supporting us in, like, creating ways to um, invest, like, take 20 black trans women and invest in their professional growth and development and giving them an opportunity to, like, have access to things that trans community don't have access to. Like my, one of my future goals is to try to raise uh, enough money to give um, 75 black trans people $10,000 and be like, hey, that's all we can scrape up. But it's just a form of like um, making up for the disparities that we experience. But more and more I sit at the policy table, I see that that's not it. So this has been a really educational experience to learn exactly what reparations is. And I haven't really like came up with a different type of framework in the way that we could participate. But it's just like my main concern is to make sure that black trans women can like feel some of the effects of what reparations is because even if they offer like free college at some historical all-black colleges, you know, it's just like black trans women haven't traditionally had access to college and the challenges that we would face. So that's a, like a cock-up if even reparations will be accessible for us and some of the things that are not accessible to trans people in the way that it should. So that's my conversation. Thank you, Ms. Janetta. And yeah, we know a lot of our, our folks are actually growing and we're hoping that this is actually reaching you in the same way. And hopefully it's, it's helping transform both the work and your analysis of how you're waging your fights and your campaigns. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and ask Marbre if you would step in 
and talk about the application to reparations and policy. And I know there's also been tension around the idea of how we actually interject this in terms of the electoral conversation. So with that, I'll hand it off. Thank you so much, Montega. Um, and thank you to everyone so much who is spending um, your Juneteenth evening with us. Um, and a special shout out, I think, to the Policy Table Reparations Working Group, um, who made this call possible. So that's Rachel Holzing, Taliba, Ms. Janetta, who just um, spoke called Brilliant, um, Rich, Andrea Ritchie, who did this amazing slideshow, uh, Jamoke from Nakova and Nikichi, who you heard from, as well as Alfios Lido Montega. So just want to thank everyone so much for the collective work that created this important conversation. So what I'm going to spend the next five or so minutes doing is talking a bit about how reparations is showing up right now in the presidential conversations. Um, and I think the kind of ground that's been laid around what reparations is and is not is really important for this conversation, because like so many issues that I think we organize around, that we triumph, we put our bodies on the line for, they often are, um, the way we talk about things is co-opted. Um, and what we're left with is kind of the skeleton um, of an idea um, that often folks, politicians co-opt and really, really take the content out of. And so I think what Miriam presented around what kind of constitutes reparations is really important as we talk through different candidates' positions on reparations and kind of try to sort through um, and weave through what that actually means. Um, this is a project, this is the beginning. Um, you will see more around this in the next month or so over the course of the first two debates. Um, and the policy is working with the electoral justice table. Shout out to Kayla Reed, who did a lot of the research for this, to really lay out the positions on reparations and make demands of the candidates to become more clear um, and to get more grounded in, in that rhetoric. And so we see a lot of candidates paying kind of lip service to this moment around reparations, but actually lacking real substance. Um, and lacking really intentionality around that. And so um, we are excited to work with EJP. We're going to have a video come out, and there'll be a website where you can actually track where the candidates stand on these issues, and we'll share all of that. But I want to really thank Kayla Reed and Brittany Carter from L4BL, which is my organization, um, who have put lots of work into compiling this. So I want to start by just saying, you know, there are a number of candidates. It's hard to imagine um, four years ago or eight years ago or 20 years ago, the number of Democratic candidates who have come out in some ways um, and at least paid lip service to the idea of reparations and apologies for chattel slavery, right? It's been hundreds of years and we've seen very, very little movement on that. And so I think it really is a tribute to the incredible organizing the decades of organizing that has happened across the country um, that really has given birth to the reality that candidates are having to speak on reparations, having to show at least some support for it. Um, although a lot of candidates, and we'll go through kind of the list specifically, have um, voiced support for the study of slavery, chattel slavery, and beyond that with H.R. 40 and S.R. 1083, which is the Senate and the House bill um, that demand a study not only of chattel slavery and its implications for modern day economics, cultural, um, social, and psychological things for all people, but have also named the war on drugs and criminalization and Jim Crow as badges and continuations um, of that type of oppression that must also be studied and compensated for. Um, and so a number of the candidates who will talk about have supported either the Senate bill um, or, in some cases, the House bill, and others who have not been in the Senate or the House have called for some sort of study. However, many have outright rejected the idea of cash as part of a reparations package, and almost all the candidates have conflated 
universal measures like baby bonds, universal income, Medicare for all, um, as reparations, which as we know from kind of the breakdown that Miriam does, did, does not actually get to reparations, right? And so things like universal health care for everybody all things like baby bonds, um, does not acknowledge the specific harms against all communities that has happened. Um, it does not guarantee non-repetition. Um, in fact, as we know, when we create policies that apply to everyone, very often black communities and brown communities are left out of those policies um, and are undermined by them, right? And so we see over and over again candidates trying to equate universal policies with reparation policies. Um, which we know are drastically different, and it's really important, we believe, to name the differences and be specific in who things address and to acknowledge that throughout history um, we have seen policies that are, quote-unquote, meant to benefit all really undermine and perpetuate racial disparities. Um, so I'm going to go through um, kind of each of the candidates or major candidates' positions on reparations really quickly. I think there's a slide for that. We'll see. Um, but want to start with kind of the quotes that we've seen from folks like Julian Castro who say things like, you know, we know that there was compensation for slave owners. And so literally following the Civil War, folks who owned black people as property were given compensation for losing slaves. And yet there was never compensation given um, to folks who were deemed property, who were, whose labor was abused, and exploited, and whose life um, was often taken, who were tortured throughout this period. And so I think folks like Julian Castro are acknowledging the clear hypocrisy of a system that literally, and I think this was mentioned um, by our MXGM comrades, where in the Haitian example, we have Haiti repaying France for decades around independence, and yet France never giving reparations for slavery, right? Um, and so we see the same kind of pattern repeated in the U.S. And while Julian Castro has named that hypocrisy and supported H.R. 40, um, he has not proposed any specific measures for reparations um, and in some speeches conflated mass expungement for marijuana convictions as a form of reparations. And so again, we don't think that that alone constitutes reparations, right? Um, next is um, Marion Williamson, um, who is a candidate who actually is the most clear supporter of reparations. She has a quote essentially where she says that reparations are necessary, that there was a mea culpa, so a, it is our fault that has to happen, and that um, it carries not only economic power, but also spiritual force. And she says, whatever it costs, it's time to do this. She has committed um, between 200 and 500 billion dollar allocation for reparations. Um, and so that is the most specific plan that we've seen for any of the candidates um, laying out a natural number. And next we have um, Senator Cory Booker. Um, while Cory Booker is the sponsor of Senate Bill 1083, which you heard some of our comrades talk about H.R. 40, this is a bill that has been introduced for decades. It demands a studying of what the um, impact of slavery and now mass incarceration and Jim Crow are. It does not have any allocation of funds for that, but demands that there'll be a commission that makes recommendations. So Cory Booker, um, Senator Booker, has um, backed the Senate version of this bill, which is 1083. Um, but I think it's important to say that that he is probably one of the most guilty candidates of conflating universal things like baby bonds, in his case, for reparations. So he advocates for universal baby bonds that are dependent upon um, income um, and says that this is reparations because it disproportionately impacts black people, which we know is not a sufficient um, litmus test for reparations, but that is his claim, um, and that is reparations that he says he supports. 
Elizabeth Warren, I think, is in a similar position. She's been rather vague. Um, she's supported the idea of reparations for black people. She said that it should also include reparations for indigenous populations, which I think was mentioned in the chat box and in the platform. We also are really clear about that, that we believe um, that as we talk about indigenous about land that we have to remember and recognize that this is stolen land. Um, and so what does that mean for our claims? Um, so she has said that she thinks that it should be for black and indigenous people. She again has nothing specific and again has conflated um, the bill that she supports, the Housing and Mobility Act that provides um, loans to first-time homeowners as an example of reparations. And so again, we see this conflation, this watering down, this vanilling of reparations um, to also equal any type of formative, positive, universal um, programs, which we know that, that it is not. We support those programs. We don't think they're reparations. Um, Bernie Sanders, our friend, um, who is deeply a universalist, and I just want to give a shout out to um, the folks in Minneapolis who actually did a town hall four years ago with Bernie Sanders and pushed him really, really hard, this is BLM Minneapolis, um, to come out in favor of reparations. He refused. He was very clear that he thinks that a universal approach is the best way to deal um, with longstanding injustices and disproportionate impacts. Um, and he across the board has been uncomfortable talking about institutional profiteering off of black people specifically. So it said things like, we don't want to cut black folks checks. We have to revamp um, and reform the banking industry, right? And so it's tried to kind of connect these things and has a very universal approach, um, but does not recognize the specific impact or make attempts to, um, to not perpetuate ongoing um, disproportionate impact. Um, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris from California, um, has also co-sponsored the Senate Bill for Reparations. Um, she again has conflated a tax credit for low-income families um, as a form of reparations and has made no comment on reparations for the thousands of folks who prosecutors like herself um, have put into cages over the last few years. And so kind of a, a lack of recognition of reparations for the ongoing mass incarceration and criminalization that has targeted black people on the war on drugs, which explicitly targeted black and brown people. And then last but not least that we're going to cover um, is Senator, former Senator and Vice President Joe Biden. Biden is perhaps the messiest of the candidates, not on the politically correct um, lip service truck. Um, so although a few of his um, spokespeople have made kind of non-descript, non-committal comments, and I'm like, this is something that we should really study, we should look more into this. Um, Biden made a comment um, that he has not yet rescinded um, over 30 years ago, but he said, I do not buy the concept that we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. Um, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather, and I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. Um, and so this is a comment he hasn't rescinded. He, again, has not advocated for any reparations packages specifically for African-Americans or black folks. Um, and I think I want to just also mention de Blasio because someone put de Blasio in the comment. And I think de Blasio is a really good case study in what we're seeing, which is that although candidates like de Blasio have supported um, studies and supported conversations at reparations, at the same moment de Blasio is pushing for the building of additional jails in New York City. And so we see over and over again that although there is this, um, I think, attempt at this moment, and I really think it is the amazing organizing that's happened across the country, um, that there's an attempt to pay lip service to the need to repair the harms of slavery, that there is a lack of acknowledgement, a lack of commitment to creating um, forward-looking policy that actually does that. Um, and that, as Miriam talked about and mentioned, really meets all five criteria of not only acknowledging specific harms, 
repealing those harms um, and trying and guaranteeing non-repetition through those harms. Um, so I'm going to stop there um, and pass it back to Montega. Um, but again, there will be more on this. Um, EJP and the Posse people will be releasing a video and more information so you can actually track the candidates. Our hope is that this is a conversation at the upcoming debate and that we can actually get more committals um, from the candidates around what reparations might look like um, under their presidency. Thank you, Mubray. Okay, first, uh, I do want to acknowledge, like, folks have been very active in the chat. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Um, so one, I, I saw one, at least one comment that I definitely want to make sure I respond to. And if there are more, like, team, make sure you flag me and let me know. Um, and then we'll get into some of the action steps we want to leave to folks uh, for the call. All right, so one, there was a comment in the box um, around uh, conversations around land uh, without first discussing uh, indigenous land rights. Um, so we did actually uh, check in like with our, our resident uh, leader from the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table Leadership Team, uh, Dara Cooper, who's uh, the lead at the National Black uh, Land and Justice. Um, she actually specifically shared in the past that all of our work acknowledges that this land is stolen. And so were we to, were we include, sorry, were we included violently separated from our own land and a land-based culture overall? Uh, justice, liberation, and reparations has to include the repairing of harm around the violent continued displacement of black and struggle for sovereignty and land for indigenous comrades. Our demand for black people's reconnection to land doesn't negate and instead contributes to indigenous rights for sovereignty. And, and just, just to note also in terms of like framing, one, we actually avoid the idea of whose claim comes first, um, both as an acknowledgement of the presence of anti-blackness, uh, but also just uh, recognizing that we're not actually competing in, in these struggles. These are places where we're actually struggling together. But thank you. Thank you for actually raising that point. And just to acknowledge that, like, we do have a lot more work to do around land justice, uh, especially in terms of reparations. But for those of you who are actually on the call, in this case, I'm looking at Marbury to ask, is this your piece of mind? Um, okay. So we do actually have some things that you can actually take action on. Um, all right. So, um, so just loving the chat box and also seeing, I think, uh, Shayla Walker, um, volunteering in the chat box to hold a conversation around reproductive justice, reproductive justice and reparations. Um, so Shayla, if it's cool and I'll send you a private message, happy to share that in the kind of follow-up notes we send for folks to reach out to you directly, um, if they're interested in that. That's an incredible conversation. Um, so we have some immediate kind of next steps that, um, folks can take today. Um, and then also, as Montega mentioned, this is an ongoing conversation. So first of all, um, there are bills in both the House and the Senate that would um, put together a commission to study the impact of slavery, um, of Jim Crow, and of mass criminalization and make recommendations. This was how um, it was a commission through the House that led to the Japanese internment reparations. Um, and so we see this, this has been a fight of folks for decades. Um, to introduce this bill, um, and it just recently has gained some popularity and has a Senate 
um, companion. And so we are asking folks, especially on Juneteenth, especially this week with these hearings going on, please call your senator um, to support um, Senate Bill um, 1083, which is the companion to the House Bill um, 10 or HR 40. And so please call your senator and your House member. Let them know you support um, these bills and you want them to vote yes on them um, and champion them. Uh, thirdly, you know, and I think Miriam touched on this a bit, but some of the kind of most exciting action, most exciting movement around operations has happened locally, both at the state level and at the hyper local and county level. And so we really encourage folks to be thinking about and pushing for reparations locally. This might include a HR 40, um, or SB uh, 1080 bill, uh, 1083 bill in your own city. About 30 cities have done this to express support for those bills. It might also include a Slavery Disclosure Act, which Chicago and other um, cities have done to just show what the impact of slavery, what the profiteering has been on the city and the long-lasting impacts. Um, you can also do this with the reparations fund that Philadelphia recently did, um, or create a um, municipal or state reparations commission to do your own study. Um, and so we will, um, we actually have a toolkit coming out, which I'm going to tell you about in a second, but we will share examples of these bills and really encourage folks to do both statewide and local advocacy around this. Um, also, we encourage folks to organize a reparations conference, symposium, forum, or lecture. Um, there are lots of reparations activists across the country, some of whom are on this webinar, um, who can speak um, to your organization. And so really encourage folks to just increase the knowledge and popular education around this topic and why it's so important. If you have questions about any of these or want support or assistance, please feel free to either email the policy table at m um, number 4 blpolicytable at gmail.com or Jamoke, um, who works for NOC and is happy to help um, and support folks in moving forward with any of these. We also will be releasing a toolkit on July 27th, which is Queen Mother Moore's birthday, um, that really details how reparations can happen locally, some case studies of reparations across the country, both national and local examples, um, as well as really concrete tools for how you actually um, can apply reparations locally um, and examples of things like the Slavery Disclosure Act and other things. And so look out for that. That will launch on the 27th. We're hoping folks will sign up for teach-ins to teach that locally um, to their own communities and really use these tools to start these campaigns locally. We think that the kind of all politics is local politics. That's where this is going to pop off. Um, and so I'm going to stop there. We have about 10 minutes. I don't know um, if folks have questions or thoughts or comments. Pass about to take for that. But I want to thank you all so much for joining. And again, look out for our um, candidate tracker, which will show you all where the candidates are at with reparations and also for our toolkit coming out in about a month. And happy and joyous Juneteenth. I'm going to take it back to you. Thank you. Okay, I think we can take a couple minutes. Like if folks want to raise hands, and then I'm going to ask our moderator to kind of help signify and put, some, put a couple folks in queue. I see a question um, around if there are any um, strategies from the cannabis or the Chicago campaigns that folks can share. So I don't know if folks are down to give like quick insight yeah. to those campaigns. Yeah, Rich, you still yeah. on the line? Yeah, I'm still on the line. Um, definitely down to share. I'll take a look and see where this comment was at and, and try to follow up. And I think one of the just, where did this just go? Um, I'll just freestyle it, right? So I think one of the key pieces, right, is the idea that 
But equity is a destination, right? And that's one of the things that – because equity is a new – I don't know where it came from in the last, like, two years. Philanthropy said we're going to use the term equity, right? So everything's equity right now. And in my mind, equity is the destination and reparations is a tool to get us there. And, like, not the other way around, right? Like, you can't get to equity without reparations. Um, so I think in, in the framing of whatever campaigns you all are, are planning to do, and specifically around cannabis legalization, I'll share everything with you. You know, and, and it was a comprehensive campaign. Like, the, the being a tactician as an organizer is also extremely important, right? Leveraging um, your campaign on, you know, in, in deep research. Um, and pulling up the facts because a lot of the elected officials were just not knowledgeable. Um, I mean, and, and it is, uh, I mean, some of it's like they just don't care to research, but then they also have a number of different bills that are coming across their desk. Um, so how to, how to, how to show favor or, or, or interest in a specific policy is also important. Um, and that's why sometimes research is definitely necessary. Um, and then also, you know, organizing a base of folks that are actually impacted by that. Um, that's the, the most important thing is that, you know, the key to democracy, essentially a democracy means that if you're affected by something, you have a right to play. If a decision is made, is being made that impacts your life, you have a right to play a role in how the decision is made. Um, and although we don't have a true democracy in America, there's a semblance of it, right? Like you can bring folks from the community to, to your capital and, and, and discuss their issues with political officials. So I can, I, I'll chat it up or whoever, let me know, and I'll, I can pass you all the information that we have, and also people that you can possibly partner with for research. Oh, and thanks, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Rich. Um, any other questions that folks saw in the chat? And I'm gonna just acknowledge up front that, like, I don't think we fully like planned. Um, on how to hold like all the questions that are landing. But as Marbury has noted, like there is a toolkit that will be coming out with a lot of like links, references, um, case studies and stuff that folks can dig into. So some of what you're asking may be contained therein. But if not, I think we're going to try and actually respond to some of that here and see if there's actually ways that folks can actually just by means of organizing follow up with you later. Okay, team, anything else that we saw that we may want to try and hold while we're on today? I also, um, we're going to send out the video to everyone who registered. It will also be on the MPBL and Law for Black Lives website. Um, and I think uh, if there are specific resources, we'll also share the resources that were shared in the chat box by the panelists. But if you all have specific resources you want us to also share, please just send that. Um, send it to me. I'll put my email in the chat box right now. Okay. All right. If there's nothing else, then one, make sure that you make note of Marbury's email and chat, and keep an eye out. Uh, we will be rolling out the toolkit on, I think it's July 27th, is the anniversary of Queen Mother Moore's um, departure from this plane, her ancestral day, um, and you will see organizations within the ecosystem begin to actually do trainings in our communities around the country. We want this just to be the beginning of the discussion, so this will go much deeper. This is just the first of many discussions we're hoping to have. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for cutting out time on your June team. Uh, we hope this has been beneficial to you. Send love.
Still loved it. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Welcome to this new global public lecture series, Decolonizing Law, exploring the relationships between law, race, imperialism, colonialism, anti-imperialism, and de-anti-post-colonialism. I'm Ralph Wilde from UCL. I'm delighted to introduce this lecture series, which offers a stellar all-women lineup of amazing speakers. Today's lecturer, Vasuki Nasaya, and following Vasuki, Liliana Obregon, Mindy Chen Wishart, Tendai Achumi, Asla Bali, Aicha Chubutsku, Fabia Fernandez Cavallo, Amaya Alves, and Vidya Kumar. Today, Vidya will be speaking, uh, will be speaking about colonial reparations. Future lectures will address international law in the Americas, racism and universities, the intersections between critical race theory and third world approaches to international law, decolonizing the idea of humanity, intervention in Latin America, nature rights and the Chilean constitution, and revolution in international law. Everyone is welcome to attend live and recordings of most of the lectures will be posted online on the website for the lectures. I'd like to offer my warmest thanks to my fantastic colleagues, Lisa Penfold, Jessica Luong, and Danielle McFarlane at UCL Laws for their outstanding work setting up the practicalities of and the publicity for these lectures. Lisa, Jess, and Danielle, I'm very grateful to you. Today's speaker is my dear friend, Vasuki Nasaya. I first met Vasuki almost 20 years ago when we were brought together on a research project headed by Hilary Charlesworth. I was then and have been ever since blown away by the sheer force of Vasuki's intellect. This combined with her highly original ideas makes her one of the most important thinkers globally in the field of international law today. Vasuki is a founding member of the Third World Approaches to International Law Twail Collective and Academic Tradition. She's Professor of Human Rights and International Law at the Gallatin School at NYU. Her current projects include two monographs in progress, International Conflict Feminism, and Reading the Ruins, Slavery, Colonialism, and International Law. She's also co-editing a book entitled Twail, a Handbook, with Anthony Angie, B.S. Chimney, and Michael Fackery and Karen Mickelson. Masuki's talk today is entitled Debt, International Law, and Reparations. Masuki, I'm delighted you're here and greatly looking forward to your talk. Thanks so much, uh, Raz, for the invitation. Um, it's great to be the warm-up act for such a stellar uh, series, um, and um, I feel quite privileged. 
Uh, Lisa, thanks for taking care of all the logistical arrangements for this event. Um, I'm re very glad to be here, even if it's on uh, Zoom. Um, okay, so without further preambles, let me turn to the paper. Um, it makes two principal interventions. Firstly, that the doctrine of odious debt becomes a way of making reparative claims for debt refusal legally legible. My second intervention, one that I try to perform in this piece, is really about how we read international law. The doctrine of odious debt, I argue, is a hook for a heterodox reparative reading practice, reading for interruption, one might say. Okay, so let me get on with it. If we're looking out to sea from the beaches of Haiti in April 1825, a dozen French warships may have been visible on the horizon. Some 20 years after France was defeated by the 1804 Haitian Revolution, France remained insistent on relitigating that loss in the domain of international law, great power diplomacy, and naval power. Carried to the Caribbean Sea by the winds of the interimperial alliances sealed at the Congress of Vienna, those warships were the backdrop to France's demand for recognition money from the Haitian president, Jean-Pierre Boyer. France and her allies would not grant recognition to the Haitian revolution and recognize Haitian sovereignty unless Haiti agreed to pay France the princely sum of 150 million francs as indemnity for the financial loss incurred by Imperial France and French slaveholders as a result of Haitian emancipation. If the French Revolution was fought with the promise of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the racial caveats to those promissory notes were clarified in Santo Domingo. To render itself visible to the world, earn recognition as a free and independent sovereign, and birth itself in the eyes of international law, Haiti was coerced into contorting itself into a debtor nation. This required asserting Haitian sovereignty in the very act that corroded it namely accepting the terms of the extortion as debt undertaken by a free and independent nation. In this way, France's demands for indemnity shifted from the hypervisibility of the warships to become the ever-present but also ever-backgrounded foundation of Haiti's post-1825 future as a sovereign nation. Notwithstanding the 1804 revolution, it is the act of assuming indebted status that is the process that births Haiti's sovereignty as a universal category that earns recognition in the society of nations. Thus, the indemnity that was imposed by the warships and what they represented translates into international law ledgers as a debt that sovereign Haiti owed to sovereign France through this paradoxical performative constitutive structure. In fact, Haiti incurred further debt to keep up payments even after the total amount was renegotiated to 90 million francs. Haiti finally paid the principal indemnity six decades later in 1893 and settled all accounts, including related interest payments in 1947. It was a world of difference that interrupted what Robin Kelly refers to as freedom dreams between 1804 and 1825, between revolutionary Haiti and post-colonial Haiti. The impact of these payments on Haiti have been catastrophic. If the warships of 1825 manifestly threatened a violent massacre, the indemnity stealthily produced an equally brutal slow violence punishment for Haiti's revolutionary aspirations. As Westernly Akhenat, the Haitian scholar noted, 
the French indemnity crippled the Haitian state and civil society. It intensified an already predatory state and accelerated the vulnerability of the economic infrastructure, easing the floodgates for foreign exploitation. There have been calls for reparations from Haiti for that catastrophic impact. At the very minimum, the calls have been for restitution of the money paid in terms of the current monetary value. As we discuss further below, these stand alongside other calls for rewriting current sovereign debt as reparations. The focus of this paper is to look at alternative international legal frameworks for debt severance as reparations, and to analyze what such an alternative framing entails and what is at stake. Dominant readings of international law celebrate its provisions for victims' right to reparations. Situated within the international human rights framework, the recognition of a right to reparation in response to human rights violations is often framed in terms of international law's promise for progress, including its capacity for generating and buttressing norms, laws, and institutions that provide ameliorative closure on these histories of atrocity. Indeed, it is often a piece with the reading of atrocity as itself arising from a violation of the rule of law rather than being symptomatic of the rules of the game. Reparations framed in human rights terms can often focus on events disconnected from their enabling conditions and their structural work or maldistributive impact. Often these processes interpolate potential reparation claimants' political subjectivity as ones that fit within narrowly drawn human rights parameters. In many cases, this might also contribute to an individualized and non-systematic understanding of perpetrators, victims, and the social relations and world systems within which they are embedded. In these and other ways, repression policies could unfold as interventions that deter, distract, um, or substitute for socioeconomic transformation. Against the backdrop of their dominant narrative, this paper probes how the demand for the severance of sovereign debt can be an entry point that seeks to refuse and interrupt rather than ameliorate and close the books. The human rights framing of reparations is in the key of repair and the restoration of the status quo. In contrast, I want to mine the archives of international law to consider interventions that might denaturalize that status quo and advance an alternative analysis of the political economy of international law and the ongoing legacies of a world order forged in the crucible of colonialism, slavery, and capitalism. With Haiti as my entry point into this conversation, I want to suggest that the concept of odious debt is a generative lens through which to rewrite the contract between Haiti and France, or we might say, between Haiti and the international community, because that contract was inextricably tethered to the histories of colonization, slavery, and a racial capitalist world order. In public international law, the concept of odious debt speaks to how debt contracts might be legitimately breached because they were not negotiated by legitimate representatives. In an argument that is provisional rather than propositional, I explore if the concept of odious debt could provide a potential fruitful strategy of legal argumentation in support of the Haitian and CARICOM demands for debt severance. If debt was a price for a formal recognition of Haitian sovereignty, odious debt might be seen as a recognition that the international norms, laws, and institutions that sustain the debt regime are directed at odious purposes that render the contract unenforceable. This framing underscores the mythos that lies behind the notion that post-colonial sovereignty is predicated on self-reflected wounds. 
Rather, the wounding is accomplished by an international system that enforces that contract. I want to draw the concept of odious debt in international law and probe the interruptive potential of this reading as an alternative framing of reparations claims. The legal category of debt functions like the angling of a camera to steer our attention in one direction rather than another by operating on two intertwined registers of presence and visibility. On the one hand, the coercion that engenders and sustains sovereign debt makes its economic, military, and geopolitical presence felt as ever-present background conditions, and on the other, debt works to focus our attention on the obligations of the indebted rather than on that coercive world order. This dynamic has provided the scaffolding for the political horizon of independent Haiti, where responsibilities attached to debt are written as an indicator of Haiti's sovereign agency, even while it is precisely the vehicle for ever greater sovereign dependence. Alcanet recounts how dependence on loans from American financiers to pay the French debt also opened the door for US intervention in Haitian affairs that continues today. The sovereignty that was recognized in that 1825 contract was one that invited more warships to its shores, both ones that were visible and ones that moved with the stealth of background rules of a racial capitalist order. Refusing those warships risk even that feeble and enfeebling sovereignty that was birthed in the 1825 agreement. For instance, in 2003, two centuries after the Haitian Revolution, John Bertrand Aristide, then president of Haiti, asked for a return of the indemnity funds, $21 billion in restitution when the sums were translated into their value in 2003. The demand was seen as a step towards another transition a transition from neo-colonial oppression into a new kind of sovereign agency. France was hostile to Aristide's demands for repayment. Moreover, like in 1825, France was able to marshal its allies to backstop France's position. Thus, the metaphorical warship sailed into visibility again, with guns already raised, ready to fire. Thus, in 2004, there was a coup against Aristide, and the US and France collaborated on forcibly removing him from Haiti. A post-Aristide Haiti was born, and the ships once again discreetly sailed beyond the line of sight of Haiti's political horizon. Haitian sovereignty was restored, and today Haitian national debt is almost $4 billion, almost half of its GDP. The Haitian call for restitution of the indemnity funds is an important adjunct to the demands advanced by Haiti as part of the 15-country Caribbean community, CARICOM, plan for reparatory justice. CARICOM situates a debt cycle as an inheritance of slavery and colonialism, arguing that this debt cycle properly, belo properly belongs to the imperial governments who have made no sustained attempt to deal with debilitating colonial legacies. Support for the payment of domestic debt and cancellation of international debt are necessary reparatory actions, they say. The call for rewriting sovereign debt is one point in CARICOM's 10-point plan for reparatory justice. The plan is directed at Europe for its responsibilities for colonialism and slavery in the region. Implicit in this vision is an analysis of how histories of colonialism and slavery are windows to the past, but also constitutive of the present. They mark the political economies that figure European privilege and prosperity, and concomitantly the vulnerabilities of the Caribbean present as dimensions of the contemporary lives of colonial and slave histories. If in this analysis, colonial interests function like a silent virus crippling post-colonial futures, debt can be seen as both the virus and its symptom, shaping the post-colonial world order while also being its product. 
the Haiti indemnity story is, is the synecdoche of that larger regime of world economic order built by colonialism and slavery. Imperial warships may not be as ostentatiously visible indicators of the conditions of recognition of every post-colonial state, but the rules for recognition are ever present. This regime of world order produced sovereign debt as the silent virus of decolonization, birthed and nurtured by that regime in ways that mutilated and fettered processes of political transition from colonialism and slavery through debt and dependence. The concept of odious debt is a transitional justice mechanism for precisely such situations. The idea of odious debt operates such that upon political transition, debt obligations taken on by an odious regime are terminated. As Professor Jeff King of UCL itself notes, odious debt focuses on the purposes to which the debt has been undertaken. In that sense, it looks back at history. Robert House summarizes its basic principles. He says the odious debt concept seeks to provide a moral and legal foundation for severing in whole or in part the continuity of legal obligations where the debt in question was contracted by a prior odious regime and was used in ways that were not beneficial or were harmful to the interests of the population. The core insight of the notion of odious debt is that the fact that a party submits to a contract is not proof of its validity. Rather, the validity of the contract should depend on the purposes to which the debt is used and basic principles of fair, equitable, and non-coercive conditions. The U.S. invoked the doctrine in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War to argue that Cuba and the United States should not be held responsible for debts incurred by the colonial Spanish government. In the Haitian case, the argument is that the world economic order built by colonialism and slavery is the core sovereign of the post-colonial nation-state. It is this odiously twinned regime that led to debts inimical to the interests of the local population. The purpose of the debt was to fatten the profits of slavery and empire. The coercive circumstances of national debt in the post-colony include coercion that is visible and coercion that is part of the background laws and institutions that cast their shadow on terms of debt negotiation. It includes the specter of warships on the horizon, as well as the laws and institutions of a racial capitalist economic order that sustain and reproduce systems of economic exploitation and vulnerability. Foregrounding these dimensions of post-colonial world order calls for reframing the notion of the odious regime to include both visible and less visible dimensions of global governance that structure how sovereigns acquire debt and negotiate its terms. How these dimensions are taken into account in defining what counts as an odious purpose emerges as a central dimension of how the doctrine is given force in assessing conditions for terminating debt obligations. If 1804 marked the freedom dreams of Haitian men and women, leading to the first successful anti-slavery, uh, anti-colonial revolution, um, the 1825 recognition of Haiti as an already indebted sovereign nation is in many ways the origin story of post-colonial sovereignty. Midwifed into the world by the twin forces of freedom dreams and odious debt, the key foundation of post-colonial sovereignty is that shackling of freedom and duress. The call for reparations for the sovereign debt burden of post-colonial states seeks to render visible the pathologies that have been normalized into the shackling of freedom and duress to help render jubilee thinkable within international law. This calls for rewriting debt as reparation um, is not a bookkeeping intuition. It is about a political intervention. 
there's a fundamental difference between framing it through the lens of debt forgiveness and framing it through the lens of odious debt. As House has written, the concept of odious debt is itself a reframing. It regroups a particular set of equitable considerations that have often been raised to adjust or severe debt obligations in the context of political transitions based on the perpetrated odiousness of the previous regime and the notion that the debt it incurred did not benefit or was used to repress the people. In short, it is a concept that in the Haitian case enables a revisiting of 1825 in the spirit of 1804. 1825 cemented the compact whereby Haiti severed the radical aspirations of 1804, undertook a debt that not only impoverished Haiti and led to untold repression and hardship for its people, but it also legitimized French colonialism and slaveholdings. C.L.R. James has written that Toussaint knew that the society of nations was morally odious. New imperialists were, in James's words, for the insatiable gangsters that they were that there is no oath too sacred for them to break, no crime, deception, treachery, cruelty, destruction of human life and property, which they would not commit, uh, commit against those who would not defend themselves, James says. It is perhaps in that sense that Scott, uh, David Scott speaks to how in James's telling of what was at stake in the Haitian Revolution was not just the legal rights of Haitians, but a revolution. When France formally renounced its claim to Haiti, what it recognized was the post-colonial sovereign state, not the revolution of 1804. Two scholarly commentators on odious debt, Jayatandran and Kramer, argue that the doctrine of odious debt relies on two basic observations. One, debt exacerbates dispossession and misery in countries that are already impoverished, and moreover, that the condition in which those contracts were undertaken were illegitimate. In a similar vein, in an article titled Odious Rulers, Odious Debts, Joseph Stiglitz makes a compelling case for the illegitimacy of such a debt contract. He says, why should the Congolese be forced to repay Cold War loans made by Western countries to buy Mobutu's favor, especially since the lenders knew full well that the money was either not to, uh, going not to the people of the country, but to Mobutu's Swiss bank accounts? Why should Ethiopians, uh, Stiglitz continues to say, have to repay the loans made to the Mengistu Red Terror regime? Loans that made it possible to buy the arms used to kill the very people whose friends and relatives must now repay the loans. Chileans today are still paying off debts incurred during the Pinochet years, and South Africans are still paying off those incurred under apartheid. Argentines are still repaying the money that financed the dirty war in their countries from 1976 to 1983. Yet in many cases where invocation of the doctrine of odious debt has been seriously considered, post-apartheid South Africa, for instance, countries have been urged against it on the theory that reneging on debts will cast aspersions on, the, on their bona fides of the little nation, that it will deter foreign investors looking to make an honest deal and inhibit integration into the international economic system. Rather, the policy edicts of multilateral institutions encourage continued debt servicing. There's even a historically third world-friendly institution, such as the UN Conference on Trade and Development, um, encourage model debtor discipline as a default option, with language strikingly resonant with notions of financial responsibility and capitalist discipline, which are routine dimensions of quotidian tutelage regarding compliant new liberal citizenship. The rewards of debt servicing undertaken by post-colonial sovereigns performing good financial citizenship is inclusion in the society of nations. It is a price of inclusion, neo-colonial debt bondage. As Mike Davis reminds us in a discussion of genocidal famines across the globe, 
millions died not outside the modern world system, but in the very process of being forcibly integrated into its economic and political structures. This question of integration into the dominant world order is what took me to the film Black Panther that is set in the world of Wakanda, a political society that has refused membership in the Society of Nations. Anthropologist Audra Simpson argues that there was something to be revealed that reveals itself at the point of refusal, a stance, a principle, a historical narrative. The opening sequence of Wakanda proves a historical, uh, provides a historical narrative to set the stage for the story of Black Panther and Wakanda's refusal. We learn about the tribes that settled Wakanda, how Wakanda tried with collective ownership of vibranium, and how to secure their prosperity. Wakanda's vowed to hide in plain sight, to refuse visibility, and keep the truth of their power from the outside world. In the context of our discussion, this refusal of visibility would mean rejecting the terms of the debt, choosing severance over recognition, perhaps choosing the legacy of 1804 over the legacy of 1825. In that opening sequence of the film, a protective invisibility shield rises around Wakanda as war and slavery unfold around it. Perhaps in another part of the world, those warships sailed into Haitian waters in this very moment. Because the film says, even as Wakanda thrived, securely hidden within its secret barriers, the world around it descended further into chaos. What if the Haitian president, Jean-Pierre Boyer, was less desperate for political recognition from the metropole? What if he had determined that Haiti was not going to pay for recognition by the Society of Nations, but that the Haitian Revolution, all it stood for and all it achieved, would be its own kind of invisibility shield? For instance, built from the alchemy of refusal and self-reliance, such shields were erected by maroon communities whose strategic sensibility and political vision were pivotal to the Haitian Revolution. The radical critique that the prosperity of Wakanda offers to the Haiti CARICOM reparation story is that this is the road not taken, an exit from the dominant economic order. Wakanda is a counterfactual that is a reference point for reparations claims. Wakanda represents the local ownership of natural resources that were lost because of colonialism's possibly integration of the global south over centuries into the global capitalist economy of Euro-American empire. Walter Rodney narrated the shadow script against which Wakanda rises, the script that showed how Europe underdeveloped Africa, where integration into the global economy was effected and constituted by the double genocide of the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism with enduring legacies of political and cultural domination, fetters of sovereign debt bondage and dependence on brutal regimes of trade and aid. If, as Mike Davis and Walter Rodney, who say that it was this racial capitalist world order that brought on the tragedies of underdevelopment as we know it, then Wakanda, a country that prospered by hiding from the world serves as a control case proving Rodney's argument. They controlled the natural resources, developed their industries, and viewed the world and history outside colonial filters. As development economist Samir Amin advised, they effectively delinked from the world system and have much to show for it. I'm not proposing delinking as a policy program, but I find the notion of delinking is a helpful heuristic in presenting an alternative political and economic imaginary of the future, to open the door to the possibility, in Amin's words, of alternative societal projects. In particular, I find potential in, in inter interpreting the notion of delinking as a form of refusal, as developed in the work of Audra Simpson, in relation to how indigenous sovereignty gets exercised contested and sustained in relation to and despite of settler colonialism, and in the context of maroon communities 
in relation to and despite slave systems. Simpson explores the politics of refusal in the context of the Mohawk nation, where Mohawk sovereignty exercises agency in ongoing, complex, and profound ways, contorting itself into a fundamental space of domestic aggression, even while circumscribed by, by settled, settler colonial American and Canadian nation states. Not reconciled to the established division of powers that may be visible from a constitution analysis of native sovereignty, the expressions of sovereign agency she highlights have a fundamentally interrupted and interruptive capacity that upstage, differ, and complicate the jurisdiction of the Canadian and American state. The articulations of sovereign agency she describes, for instance, in defining membership in ways that are discontinuous with how rights and territories are defined by the Canadian and American state, or the constitutions uh, that represent belonging in those states, um, are constitutive of the ongoing negotiation of what Simpson describes as nested sovereignty. Simultaneously riven and constituted by tensions and internal contradictions, the nested sovereignty of settler colonialism is a form of sovereignty that shackles freedom and duress, anti-colonial freedom dreams, and neo-colonial debt bondage. Indeed, the international debt regime within which Haitian sovereignty has been embedded has a family resemblance to the contours of settler colonialism and the ongoing negotiation for space within such regimes. The spaces of refusal of Mohawk sovereignty may or may not be accessible to Washington or Ottawa or be recognized by international laws indicators of sovereignty, such as exclusive control over a defined territory, for instance. But illegibility might be part of its power as a refusal of a contract that predicated recognition on compliance. As trail scholars, amongst others, have argued, the rules for membership in the Society of Nations have embedded in them the very hierarchies and exclusions that make the quest for recognition a tragically self-defeating enterprise. As we have discussed in relation to the Haitian case, the very norms, rules, and procedures for inclusion in the name of universality fetter aspirations for self-determination. If integration into the world system on exploitative terms was coerced by colonialism in the post-colonial era, neutral rules of recognition do their own work through a racial capitalist world system that invites inclusion as the inevitable articulation of self-determination. These derivative terms of membership that have marked the political horizon of anti-colonial projects, indebted as they are to imperial constructions of modernity, are a mark of the strength of imperial hegemony among political elites who agree to the terms of the international debt regime. It is in this sense that a politics of refusal stands in contradistinction to a politics of recognition. It is a strategic hiding from recognition. As with Wakanda, camouflage as a nation of impoverished herdsmen, encouraging misrecognition may be part of the story of survival. Eluding recognition is here a mark of sovereignty rather than its defeat. Death has catalyzed its own history of refusal. And in that point of refusal, in each iteration, there was something, as Simpson says, that did reveal itself. A political ethics of interrupting an unjust international order a historical narrative about the legacies of colonialism, an economic argument about the conditions for development of vision of an alternative political future. And there is a long tradition of refusal of the dominant model economy regarding debt. For instance, the new International Economic Order Declaration and Program of Action catalyzed a large call for debt restructuring that inspired social movements and shaped multilateral institutions such as UNCTAD. This includes the 1985 call for a third world debt strike, a quarter century later, the Jubilee campaign calls for canceling debt, 
and policies that did not exploit immediate needs through credit terms that entrenched long-term economic precarity. In the current moment, there's been a call in the wake of COVID for, debt, for a debt moratorium. Um, in 2019, stunningly, 64 countries around the world, half of them on the African continent, spent more money to service the external debt than on healthcare. The call says the governments in 125 low- and middle-income countries spent 10.7% of their revenue on public health, while they drained 12.2% on external debt payments. The international think tank, the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt, has called for a citizen's audit of sovereignty debt, of sovereign debt to trace who benefits and who loses in this way. This, too, is a form of refusal. Joseph Stiglitz has argued that IFI's um, default opposition to this form of refusal um, the international financial institutions um, hostility to debt restricting and debt defaults. This default opposition advances the interests of those who prey on precarity and need, but being fundamentally inimical to the long-term economic interests of borrowers and non-speculative creditors. Drawing from the history of unpayable debts in many Latin American countries that exacerbated poverty, Stiglitz has argued that debt forgiveness and debt restructuring is a sensible economic strategy for all governments benefiting debtors and creditors alike. Some economists argue that rather than bringing catastrophe, default episodes mark the beginning of economic recovery. This is a story told about Argentina and the story told about the road not taken by Greece. The possibility of a third world debt strike that Castro invoked in 1985 as a continental dialogue on foreign debt may be one expression of such overt collective refusal. The potential political work of such a call for debt severance it is fundamentally interrupted and interruptive capacity in relation to international economic governance. These histories of interruptive refusal and the staccato rhythm through which they are expressed, from Aristide to CARICOM, NIEO to Castro's call for a death strike, frame death severance as a form of refusal from being hailed as an international economic subject by international law, a hiding from recognition that renders a little subject ungovernable by the international economic order. In this way, debt severance is a reparations claim is not a measure of economic desperation, but an assertion that there is a hidden realm of odious purpose that is embedded into the routine of international citizenship and good governance. Anticlimatically for the thread we've been posting here at the end of Black Panther, Wakanda issues delinking. Like President Jean-Pierre Boyer from 200 years ago, King T'Challa, the woefully disappointing hero of Black Panther, sought recognition from the metropole and membership in the ranks of cosmopolitan humanitarianism. Nastuchala ends his UN address with a redemptive nod to neoliberal globalization and the promise of multilateral agencies shaping trade and aid from the ghettos of Oakland to impoverished places of the planet the world over. Ishichala's romance with recognition by the global elite is not without historical precedent. As Alcanath notes, Jean Price Mars, considered the intellectual godfather of negritude movements, accused the Haitian elite of practicing collective Bavarianism or a form of mass escapist daydreaming at the expense of the largely traditional African heritage population. Moorism sought recognition as Francophone rather than Afro-Caribbean with their own futures tied to the romance of global recognition. In closing now, let me return, however, to the interrupted and interruptive capacity of repression claims in the register of odious debt. This is not a plea for debt forgiveness. Debt forgiveness implicitly legitimizes the underlying contract. In contrast, the doctrine of odious debt draws attention to how illegitimate purpose is built into international economic transactions based on enslavement, colonization, and exploitation, directly or indirectly. Be it the international economic order of 200 years ago or the economic order of Bretton Woods that we are living with today. 
If debt forgiveness invests in a certain actuarial visibility, the doctrine of odious debt invests in a legal legibility. If the depression claims of Haiti were taken up in court, the doctrine of odious debt provides a legal hook for a friend of the, ho- a friend of the court brief, an amicus curiae. Let me conclude then with some reflections on legal argumentation, or what I would like to call recombinant legal argument by building on the work of cultural theorists such as Mekebal and Saidi Hartman. At the core of a reparative claim is the status of the visible, and at the core of the legal claim about odious debt is the structure of the fabula. The fabula is what Saidi Hartman following Baal refers to as the building block of the narrative. In search of legal claims, stitch together doctrine and precedent, authorized interpretations and persuasive reinterpretations. With the hum of social movements and socioeconomic transformation as impetus and inspiration, amendment and reannotation are the building blocks of legal change. Legal concepts that were once errant and marginal may move to center stage. Settled interpretations may be rendered doctrinaire and out of date. This process can yield legal arguments that are innovative composites of the settled and the unsettling in ways that have resonance with what has been termed recombinant narratives. Hartman speaks to historical narrative that calls for a reconsideration of received interpretations by drawing attention to the essentially contested nation of the, uh, nature of the fabula and the narratives that provide their scaffolding. Her method of critical fabulation describes how we might engulf authorized speech in the clash of voices and the ways in which she has tried to work with the archive to make visible the production of disposable lives. It is a project that requires listening generously for the fabula, imagining it differently, and then narrating it by rearranging, she says, the basic elements of the story. This mode of bearing witness is part of what dissident lawyering entails in formulating and advancing the doctrine of odious death. Just as Hartman's history works with and against the archive, the legal argument for rewriting sovereign debt as reparations is working with and against law. A heretical imagination and the invocation and rearrangement of basic legal concepts of contract and equity emerges equally central to thinking about recombinant legal narratives that can contribute to a politics of refusal. From Santo Domingo to Wakanda, the life of slavery and revolution, of legal claims about odious death and political briefs for delinking, these are all at the same time both a recording and a speculation about what happened, what might have happened, in ways that open up what could happen. If the current world order continues to hurtle Haiti and, CARICOM, and the CARICOM world further into a long night of atrocity, the repression claims and the story it narrates about how that world functions is like a modern Shahanaze tale, both true in its wisdom and fanciful in its ambitions, magical in its idealism and realist in its account of the lives and futures at stake. In drawing attention to the fact that we are all witnesses to atrocity, it seeks to forestall the futures that have condemned the formerly enslaved and colonized and redirect our vision to an alternative dawn. This repertory vision interrupts the necropolitical abyss that is built into the logic of the international system through yet another story and makes such alternatives seeable by the eyes of the law. In this, it follows previous storytelling interventions in nights past by Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Paul Aristide, and others yet to follow in the coming nights. Let me end there. Thank you so very much, Vasuki, for such a wonderfully rich, uh, nuanced, and insightful treatment of such an important topic. Thank you. Can I now ask those of you attending live to post any questions or comments you might have in the Q&A section of Zoom? And I'll put these to Vasuki in the time that we have left between now and the end of the hour. I'll perhaps, while people are doing that, um, uh, um, start with one myself, Vasuki. So 
Um, in your presentation, in your in your work, you 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 conceptualize an uh, an, an idea, of, uh, invoke an idea of of Ill what sometimes you refer to as illegitimate debt, of odious debt. Of course, understood in the context of your idea of of hiding from recognition. Of course, one thinks of Frantz Fanon as part of the established normative and political regime globally. So hiding from and challenging the very rules, as you call them, the rules that, that as you characterize the rules that fetter self-determination. I wanted to ask you whether though this, these concepts imply necessarily have to imply some sort of idea of certain other forms of debt that might be legitimate. And and um, and if so, is it, are the concepts still ones that, to, to to a certain extent, buy into certain underlying ideas, notably economic ones, which one might wish to challenge in other contexts, and indeed even in this context. Um, sure, and a great great question. I mean, I think of this, you know, in some sense, odious that. Is not. I mean, that's partly why I think of it um, as sort of as, as provisional, as provisional claim rather than a propositional claim. It is not a claim. It is not a claim about um, about that, or even um, as a as a way of defining, you know, what is, you know, a legitimate contract. It is instead, in some sense, a political move, a strategic political intervention, um, which is. Um, entailed in some sense, which is, you know, some sense catalyzed by the by the circumstances of sovereign debt um, today. Um, that doesn't mean that it may not have other kinds of consequences, including ones that are deemed um, uh, 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 deemed legitimate. I mean, I think it, in some sense, it, um, it it cannot be a theory that is transhistorical. And I think in every particular context one has to make the claim. And I use Haiti as an example because it's particularly vivid in some sense with uh, what happened in, um, in 1825. But I see it as, you know, just a, the, the grain of sand through which we understand what the, the, the conditions of, um, the, of, of the global south or the post-colony in some sense more, more generally. Um, so, um, so in that sense, it's, I think, up to each intervention to recombine these um, uh, the, the fabula in ways that um, that, that make a persuasive uh, more persuasive argument. Great, thank you very much. Uh, so now we have a a question from uh, my uh, wonderful co-host for these uh, events, Alonso Gomendi Dunkelberg, who will be with uh, you all as host of the next uh, lecture. So Alonso asks, and I'm I'm reading this from the Q and A. In the past, odious debt could end up leading to armed intervention. There were many efforts led to decouple the two. Would you say that the prohibition on coercive collection of debt has entrenched the concept of debt and made us talk about it less in the developing world, made us in the developing world talk about it less? Um, Alonso asks, why are developing nations no longer making odious debt one of their main talking points at the UN? Yeah, good question. I mean, um, you know, I am, um, yeah, it, it is a, a question that I have as well <laughs> about, you know, why, why, for instance, CARICOM, um, 
they haven't uh, framed some of their arguments um, in this mode. Um, and I think, you know, partly, of course, that the international community um, has been um, so hostile to the notion of ODS debt um, and f has been so, um, um, you know, as such a basic investment in uh, in, in um, notions of, uh, in, in a depoliticized notion of um, contract um, and saving private order um, that, uh, and there's so many powerful actors involved with it, even in the most extraordinary circumstances like Haiti or, you know, or like even in the context of COVID, you would think that this crisis would let, would would sort of be an opening that would um, allow people to um, um, be able to, you know, um, relax uh, or have a moratorium on debt, you know, but nevertheless safeguard their, uh, mm -hmm. even, the, even the most uh, uh, nefarious actors safeguard their interests by saying it's a crisis or it's an emergency or an exception. But even in this context, there has been reluctance to um, um, uh, let go. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh,